What up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the Black Expat Podcast. My name is Carl, and I'm excited to be rocking with you guys for yet another episode. I am excited today because I will be joined by an another amazing and another. I'm excited today because I will be joined by another amazing black woman who is also residing here in Taiwan. If you have not already, please make sure you go and check out my previous episode called Her Story Part One, which had Tiffany, who's been living out here in Taiwan for four years and is a black woman, an amazing black woman, coming all the way from Virginia, a country girl as she self-describes herself, out here changing the world and doing some amazing things. It was, again, more than an honor to have her on the previous podcast. The Her Story will be a three-part series. Uh, I will try to do, my goal is anyway, to have uh, her stories three times per month, as, and it'll be followed up with his story and then also my story because, you know, I am the black expat and the host of the podcast. I want to make sure I give you guys a little bit of dose of my story as well. But again, today I'm really excited to be joined by Nicole Cooper. And then once she calls in, we'll go ahead and get her interview started and on the way. As always, before we jump into the interview, as a way to her to call in, make sure you guys check out my YouTube channel today. Uh, this month, I am doing a month-long feature of my time spent in Kenya. Uh, for Black History Month, as well as a few other stories mixed in between. But the main focus is my travels through Kenya and my articles on Medium. And of course, make sure you subscribe to my podcast and YouTube channel. I'm actually really excited about this upcoming interview with Coop Coop because she does some different things out here in Taiwan that I personally haven't done, but I've been trying to get into for a while. Uh, but this has a very uh, interesting story that I want to share with everyone. So uh, with that being said, she's calling in. Let's get right into the interview. Hello, Nicole. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you so much. And welcome to the Black Expert Podcast. How are you doing today, this lovely morning in Taiwan? Yeah, I'm doing well. It is actually a very sunny day in Taichung. I'm actually really happy that the sun is out. I'm going to walk my dog and get some of that vitamin D in. But uh, if you don't mind, we'll jump right into the interview. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit about your background, where you're from, and what led you to coming to Taiwan? All right. So uh, introduce myself one more time. My name is Nicole Cooper. I have many nicknames, but most people know me as Coop, which is my last name minus the E-R. So I'm from the U.S. I grew up in New Jersey. I've lived there for nearly all of my life. I went to school in New York City, and then I did a fifth year in Philadelphia. But since my hometown is considered part of the greater Philadelphia area, I was pretty much a commuter to school there, so I never actually lived in Philly. And about why I came to Taiwan, I feel like every time I answer this question, I realized that there are actually many things that influenced me moving abroad. And Taiwan kind of ended up being the coincidentally lucky choice. So I could break down the whole timeline for you if you would like me to do that. Oh, absolutely. All right. So I guess a passive influence factor could be the fact that Part of my family was born and raised in Jamaica. So growing up, I always had this 
dual culture upbringing, so I've kind of learned to appreciate different cultures. Or it could also be the fact that some of my childhood friends were also children of immigrants, or they moved to the U.S. when they were they were really young. And then I would say more of an active influence for my reasoning of moving abroad started when I was in college. So first, I would say my spring semester of freshman year, I was very late registering for classes and I wanted to knock out all of my gen ed courses. So I saw I needed to take a history class. So I saw history and politics of East Asia and I was just like, oh, that looks cool. I don't want to take US I don't want to take US history for the millionth time, so I'll choose this one. And coincidentally, the professor for that class is Taiwanese. So I wonder if sometimes I wonder if that was like deja vu that I would end up going to his home country. And then moving on to my second year of college. So at the school I went to, we had this thing called learning communities where you take two or three subjects and they're combined with a common theme. Mm. So, in, so in my second year of college, I did, and I guess, I don't remember the exact name, but it was something international related. So the combined courses were world literature and international business. And part of the final project was uh, that we were assigned to, that we were assigned certain countries and we had to do an in-depth research of the country and also study its business practices and cultures. So I think at that moment, when I took that class, I figured like, hmm, it would be really cool to experience living and working in another country and seeing how all of these business practices would be handled in a different cultural situation. So that was my undergrad influence. So then when I did my fifth year in at the school I went to in Philly, um, during my first four years of school, I wasn't allowed to do study abroad because I played sports. So when you play sports in college, it's pretty much a year-long commitment and getting out of it is not really an option unless you want to forfeit your scholarship. And since you're also American, you know how expensive schools are in the U.S., Nobody wants to pay with that, pay for that if they don't have to. No. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so um, during my time there, my academic advisor sent me an email about this travel study program that was going to be in Hong Kong and Singapore, and she sent to me. She sent me um, a flyer about it in an email, and she was like, "I think you'd be interested in this. You should go to the interest meeting on the day it was held." So I went to it, I checked it out, and I'm like, hmm, this sounds cool. I've never been to Asia before. So I kind of just said, sure, let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about the program. So, um, so in this course, everyone was put into groups of two or three, and we were assigned a company in either Hong Kong or Singapore. So we had to do a really long research paper and in-depth analysis about these companies. And then when we actually traveled to these places, we visited all of the businesses that we studied, met people that are in upper management, and they kind of give us like a little presentation about their company and some of the cool things that they're doing. 
And part of our final grade was that if it was a company that you were assigned to study, you had to lead the discussion by asking all of the really complex and difficult questions or things you found during your research. Mm-hmm. So this was my first experience being that far from home. And long story short, I loved it. I had a blast. It was probably one of my highlights during my time in university. And prior to going to this trip, um, I was already looking at jobs, seeing what there is to do after school. And I was on my school's database and I was looking at international jobs. And I kept coming across job postings about teaching in South Korea, teaching in China, teaching in Taiwan, teaching in Japan, teaching in Thailand. Those are a lot of really common places that a lot of people go to become a teacher. And I bookmarked all of them because it sounded really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I remembered that someone that I knew who graduated, I believe she's two years old, uh, she graduated two years before me. I noticed that she was living in South Korea based on her social media. And I was wondering like, oh, I should message her because maybe this is what she's doing. So I was able to talk to her and she told me some things about how she found living in South Korea. And then she told me that, oh, I think you'd be perfect for this job. Send me your resume. So I did. But I think what she didn't tell me was that she was planning on actually leaving to come back to the U.S. because of some... Uh, emergency issue, I don't remember. And they were actually looking to fill that role ASAP. And at this time I was still in school, so I wouldn't be able to fill the role. So South Korea was out. Um, Also around this time, someone else that I knew told me about a program that's called Princeton in Asia. And this actually would have been more aligned with what I studied in school because it would have been more business related. Long story short, I applied, went to an interview. They didn't accept me. So that was out too. So what was left was, okay, how about China, Taiwan, or Japan? So I sent applications to all of those places, but I think I ended up picking Taiwan because it was the more mysterious place to me. So I already knew a little bit. I already knew a little bit about China. I knew a little bit about Japan, but when it came to Taiwan, the only things I really knew is that I own a lot of things that were made there, and the capital city is Taipei. That's it. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So, like through. So, I know you talked a little bit about your upbringing and how your family. uh, You said some of them were raised in another part of the world in Jamaica, right? Yes, Jamaica. And were you were, were you a part of that experience growing up? Did you also spend some time living there or was it just other members of your family as well? Uh, no, I never lived there. I've only went there for like extended visits during breaks from school. And when one of my cousins got married, the wedding was actually in Jamaica because she married someone who was from there. So it would have been a lot easier to have the wedding in Jamaica versus having him come to the U.S., so, so when oh sorry. So I was in a wedding in Jamaica. That's what I was going to say. 
So when you were preparing to uh, and even thinking about making a move to another country and abroad, did you find yourself getting a lot of support from your family? They're like, you know what, we support you in this. We want you to go and leave the country. Or was or were they more apprehensive about you even considering just leaving, you know, where you're originally from and then moving halfway across the world? I would say they were supportive of it. Um, About my family, I have family spread out all over the U.S. Some still live in Jamaica. And then there are like distant relatives that are also in Canada and also in England. So we're already, we already had family everywhere. So think when I really think about it, it's not surprising that I wanted to leave home. Mm -hmm. I think my parents were more apprehensive about the fact that I'm the youngest child. So I'm making them an empty nest. (laughs) (laughs) So I think they were more scared about that fact. And I'm the youngest child, so it's like, oh, the, our baby's leaving. So they were scared about that. But after my first year here in Taiwan, they came to visit me. So I guess once they finally got to see what Taiwan is like and see how I'm living, they're like, okay, she's doing all right. We can let her. We can let her stay and sleep, <laughs> and sleep well at night. You know what's what's interesting is uh, even with my last interview with. Uh, TT, who me and you both know and also is out here in Taiwan, uh, both yeah. her and I, uh, Taiwan was mentioned to us by someone else, right? Uh, but uh-huh. for me, it was mentioned similar to you uh, by a professor who taught me Chinese and who happened to be Taiwanese and kind of said, hey, this is a job I'm offering you. Go ahead and do it. But your process was a little different in that you actually then, even though hearing about Taiwan and learning about it, you still had to go about it on your own and like finding a job in either Taiwan, Japan, Korea, or in mainland China. So like, what what was your search process like? Where did you start? And then once you ciphered through all these jobs, how did you land on, you know what, I'm going to make it a point to come to Taiwan, not just because it's something I don't know about, but but because I found a job that I think I'd be interested in? Um, I think what made me like consider taking a teaching job is that while I never had experience teaching in a school, I've had other experiences where I'm in some type of position where I'm teaching people. So... I used to do track and field. So I've coached high school girls um, in the events that I did. Um, at my at the church that I went to at the time, I used to teach Sunday school classes. So uh, there were already people who were telling me like, oh, you would be a good teacher. Like you should consider, if it's not considered your full-time job, but do something with this skill. So I think that's also what, made me consider taking a teaching job out here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I know, again, I never thought I was going to actually get into teaching at all, but it was kind of something mm-hmm. that I kind of fell into. Uh, and I did I did a lot of tutoring and, like you said, just working with other people, younger people for the most part uh, growing up. So the transition to teaching seemed a little bit effortless. Uh, didn't like it at first, but it definitely grew on me like a like a like a dangerous scab. So like, was it a lot of online research? Did you have to make phone calls to people? Was there anybody that can kind of connect you to these opportunities? Or was it all something that you kind of just did, did on your own and like finding the jobs that you wanted to kind of jump into? Most of it was, yeah, online research. Um, I think what made me really curious about Taiwan is that on YouTube, You can find a lot of information of people talking about teaching in Korea, teaching in China, Japan, Thailand, etc. 
But I actually never really saw a lot of information about teaching in Taiwan. And before moving here, I wasn't a part of any foreigner in ta- foreigners in Taiwan Facebook groups. I was only part of like very generic tribal groups, very generic living abroad groups. I think one group, both of us are in Black Americans living abroad. Like I joined that group before I left, but I never knew about brothers and sisters of Taiwan or foreigner society in Taiwan. So a lot of it was just things I found either from YouTube or websites and blogs outside of uh, social media. Hmm. So, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm done. So you arrive in Taiwan. Um, after the first year, you said your, your parents came and they visited and they said that you were living okay. So um, like, what, what kept you here? Like, cause you've been in Taiwan for how many years so far? It'll be four years this summer. So also fun fact, I didn't mention this. I moved to Taiwan two days before my birthday. So whenever my Taiwan anniversary comes up, I always <laughs> think of it as like, it's like an unintentional birthday gift to myself. Mm. Yeah, because like to my family, they know me as a homebody. So it's also, I think also choosing to move abroad, I guess my parents maybe found it a little ironic because they're just like, you moving to Asia, you're such a homebody. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you celebrated your first, well, you celebrated a birthday here in Taiwan. So like, did you celebrate with anyone that you worked with or was it kind of just, you know, you by yourself just taking it all in and just adjusting being, being in a new place? Uh, it was mostly me taking it all in because when I came, I had orientation like the next day. So it was kind of me just taking in the experiment and taking in the experience. I didn't know anybody yet. It was just like, all right, let's go to this orientation and see what life here is going to be about. <laughs> <laughs> and did living in Taiwan, just was like the first, go back to like your first two or three months. Did living mm-hmm. in Taiwan, uh, was it, did it reach, did it live up to your expectations? Uh, in the first three months, did you have feelings like, you know what, maybe I made a bad decision or was it, you know what, I'm actually really enjoying this experience. It is what I thought it was, it, what it could be. And I know that it could be more. To be honest, I kind of tried to keep myself from creating expectations because I didn't want to disappoint myself later. I would say my first few months or pretty much my first year in general, it was mostly going with the flow and just like, okay, here's this thing I don't know. Let's see what that's about. Oh, here's another thing I don't know about. Let's see what that's about. That was pretty much my mindset, just kind of just like, try everything well not literally everything but you know <laughs> <laughs> so like once you got here what, what was something that you tried here that you probably wouldn't have tried back at home or maybe it was just the first time you tried doing something um i'm trying to, i'm trying to replay my first year here so i remember my it was probably like my fourth or third or fourth month here, I saw a flyer of a very popular uh, Jamaican singer from like the 80s. Her name is Sister Nancy. And I saw that she was coming to perform in Taiwan. So she did a concert in Tainan. And I was just like, what? That's crazy. Because I remember listening to her as a child because my mom used to like, used to always play her songs. And I was just like, oh, 
I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone here, or I don't know anyone who would be interested in going. So, so while I have been to concerts by myself, they were always places that were close to where I live. But this is in another city, which would have been too far to do a day trip given the time of the concert. So I was just like, okay, I'm gonna go to the city I never been to, stay here for a night, and go to this concert in this foreign country I've never been to and just see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and how was that? Was it a good concert? Did you have a good time? Yes, I actually met her. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I remember like after she did her set and then they just started playing like a bunch of dance hall music. So it kind of turned into a dance party after she did her performance. And I remember I left and I went to, uh, no, I didn't leave the place. I went to use the bathroom and then I was walking back and then someone came up to me and was like, do you want to meet Sister Nancy? And I'm just like, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you can go there. So I was just like, okay, I'll walk. And then I saw um, there was another person who was also like waiting too, but she was kind of like me, kind of like, she. I think she also came by herself too. And she was also kind of like a little hesitant to kind of like approach her and ask like, hey, can I take a picture with you? So we kind of like bonded over that and we're like talking about it. So both of us together, we kind of had the courage to go up there and ask her to take a picture with her. And then, yeah, after that, we I hung out with this person for the rest of the night. So I ended up making a new friend. Oh, man, that's, that's really cool. I mean, man, I, de- I definitely wish people would actually dance more here in Taiwan, but that's, mm-hmm. that's a whole nother discussion <laughs> for a whole nother day. There's never really a lot of dancing or like real dancing. But I know um, you've uh, said that, you know, w- when you first came here, a lot of people go through this when they move abroad, that uh, you go to or you went to a lot of places on your own. Um, was that something that you would do also back at home? Would you always go, you know, out to places on your own? Or uh, was it something that you kind of discovered yourself doing more of when you moved abroad, you know, without friends or family and things like that? Would I have done this at home? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Because, like, to be honest, I'm really not that much of an outgoing person. I'm actually, like, like I told you before, I was a homebody. I'm very introverted. So I I found that when I first came here, I kind of had to force myself to be a little bit more outgoing. But luckily, the head teacher at the time, at the school I worked at, she was very, very helpful. So she asked me, like, what are some things that you like? So I told everything. And she really did a really good job of pointing me in the right direction of where I could find these things. So I remember um, once I finally settled, got an apartment here in Taichung, she like sent me a text message of all of these Facebook groups I could join. So things like Taijung Info Exchange, of course, but then also like very specific groups. So things like Taijung Ladies or Taijung Sports. So it kind of helped me find some of the things that that would have been of interest for me. Well, that's good because I mean, I apologize for everyone listening. If I have an echo, I've been trying to fix it. I don't know where it's coming from. I can't hear the echo, but I think other people can. But yeah, it's interesting because when I came, again, all these Facebook groups didn't exist. So it was kind of just, mm-hmm. I, and I'm, I like you, I'm a, well, was a homebody, but I found myself having to go outside and like meet people and walk around to find things and 
follow posters aimlessly without being able to do research on the event or see like an events list or who may be attending. So it's always interesting to hear, you know, how how everyone's experience first entering Taiwan is different, but also how much technology and Facebook groups have really helped us be able to acclimate, especially as black people, be able to acclimate uh, quicker and, and faster to to our environment. So like, what is what has been one of the hardest things to adjust to uh, in Taiwan versus where you used to live, you know, back home? Um, I guess the most obvious one, obviously the language. I wish I studied more Chinese before I came here. I came here just knowing, hello, please, thank you, and numbers. And part of me was thinking like, oh, I'll be fully immersed in this Mandarin-speaking society. I'll just pick things up as I go. And while that did work, it wasn't at the speed that I thought it would be. I feel like things like that, when it comes to like picking up a language without doing any like formal studying, I feel like it would be easier if it were a language that's similar to the language or languages that you speak. So maybe if I went to a country that spoke a Romance language or a Germanic language, maybe I would have picked it up better because in languages like French or German or Italian or Spanish, there are already a lot of words that sound like English. Whereas in Mandarin, there aren't too many words that sound like English. And a lot of those words are words that I don't use in my everyday speech. I must say, I can't think of any Mandarin word that sounds like an English word. I always try to think like, man, what is what is a Mandarin word that sounds like something I would say in English? The only thing I can think of is no. A lot of it is food, like coffee. Oh, guava. okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. I don't like guava. <laughs> I don't like Coca-Cola. So like I wouldn't use those words. Yeah. Oh, you know what? That's actually fair. Because like Coca-Cola. Oh, I don't forget how to say Coca-Cola. I'll just be saying Coke out here because they know what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. That's interesting. So like I know uh you talked about uh going on Facebook and being connected to those communities, but uh are there any other ways in which you've worked to find and build community here in Taiwan? Yes. Um so I told you before that my the, the former head teacher of our school, she kind of pointed me in the direction to find things that I wanted to find. So one of those Facebook groups was Taijong Sports. And so every time I join a new Facebook group, I always spend a lot of time scrolling to see what people have been talking about recently. And in this group, I noticed it was kind of dead. There hasn't been many... Uh, recent posts since the time I've joined. But the first thing I saw was an event about capoeira. And I was just like, oh, cool. I've seen people do that before in the States, like do street performances. And I commented on the post um, because the event happened the day before I joined the group. So I missed it. So I commented on the post and said, oh, this looks cool. How often do you guys do this? I would come to the next one. And the person who made the post was the teacher of the group that I now train with. So she ended up messaging me saying like, oh, it might not be for a while, but if you're free on these evenings, we have class, you should come. And this was within my first month here. So I'm very free. I don't know anyone, I have nothing to do. So. Yeah, I'll come. And it's close to where I live. Yeah, I'll come. So I went, long story short, I went to my first class. 
And I was just like, okay, I'll be back. When's the next time? I'm coming. I like it. So I've started this within my first month of living here. And to this day, I'm, I'm sticking with it. And I've kind of grown to really love the art. So for people who don't know what capoeira is, so it's a Brazilian martial art that was started during the era of slavery in Brazil. So it was used as a way to fight back against the slave masters. And in modern times, there's been some changes with the art. It's gone through prohibition eras and I guess just general structures of how the art is practiced today versus how it was practiced in the past. And it ended up being a combination of fighting, dance elements, acrobatics, and then there's also a music component of it. So you have instruments, you have a band that's playing, and they're singing all of these songs in Portuguese. And then once people uh, get around to learning the language, um, one then realizes that a lot of these songs are songs about history and culture of Brazil. So it was already it was it was a lot of things that I already liked combined into one activity. So I think that's what really drew me to the art. And once I got a chance to learn it, is what also kept me in the art. So you you've been doing that for quite some time now. So once you started, you haven't stopped since you've been in Taiwan, correct? Yeah, I never stopped. And have you written anything about it? Oh yeah, I have. Um, so every year they have something called a batizado, which basically trans, I think the literal translation is baptism, but um, it's, but what it actually is in Capoeira is a belt promotion ceremony. So it's when you move up the levels, you get a new color belt. And I did write about my first two batizado experiences. And also um, during my time learning this art, I realized how big it is globally. So when I went to my first Pachizado, so of course you have everyone who trains in Taiwan, but then we had all of these guests from other countries. So people that came in from China, from South Korea, from Japan, from Malaysia, from Thailand. Some people who came all the way from North America also came. And of course, uh, masters of the art that came from Brazil. So it really made me realize like how global this art really is. And after my first promotion, I had a chance to go to Hong Kong and go to an event there. So then I got to meet people from different groups. And one thing I really love about Capoeira is that you have all of these groups and there's like, and there's different locations. So how all of these groups started. So you have masters of the art that are Brazilian. They leave Brazil they move to all these other countries and then they open up schools there and then they train people up. And once those people reach a certain level, they're now trusted to teach other people or if they're interested in doing capoeira as a job, they can run the whole academy and then the master will move to another city and then open up another school and then just continue and continue and continue. So the group that I train with originally started in Oakland, California. And there are currently locations in a few other cities in the U.S. There are also um, locations in China, in Italy, in Iceland. So if I were to ever go to any of these places and say, 
hey, I trained with Capoeira Manjinga in Taiwan. It's kind of like you're already accepted as like family. It's just like, oh, you know so-and-so. Oh, you train with so-and-so. They're like, oh, come on in. And that's actually what happened when I went to Hong Kong. So I went with another one of my friends who started Capoeira a year before I did. And we decided to go to Hong Kong together. And we were trying to find a place to stay. And our teacher told us, you should message this person on Facebook. And we ended up staying at our place in Hong Kong for free for the entire weekend while we were there. Hey, that's always amazing. Ooh, yeah. But yeah, man, that's, I mean, that's, that's just absolutely amazing. Like the connections you can make just from, you know, getting out in another country or even in your hometown and just getting involved and then realizing how connected, not just, you know, the city or the town is, but how connected the world is. I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. that's just amazing. I might have to, I might have to start doing that too. Um, <laughs> so like, uh, what passions have you discovered or rediscovered while uh, living here in Taiwan? Like in addition to what you just talked about as well. Yeah, so starting Capoeira actually started like a whole new domino effect. So so in Capoeira, it's a combination of many things. And one of them is being acrobatic elements or tumbling. A lot of that stuff is woven into the art. So when you see people play when you see people play Capoeira, they're doing all these interesting moves, they're throwing all these cool kicks. But in between all of that, you see they might throw like a cartwheel, they might throw a handstand or a bridge or if someone is really talented, they might throw a flip in there. So, so practicing like the capoeira way of doing all these acrobatic elements kind of gave me like a nostalgia feeling because as a child, I used to do tumbling classes. Mm-hmm. And here I am again in my 20s doing some of the scheme skills I did when I was between the ages of five and 10. So it had me really interested in like, oh, I should practice these things more because not only would it help me in capoeira, it'll be cool to relearn all the things that I used to do as a child. So before I used to just practice at the park. I would go to the park, do a lot of like hand balancing skills because while I did have the muscle memory for a lot of things, I didn't trust myself to do it on the ground. Mm. And, and I wasn't trying, I've had injuries before and I wasn't trying to have any new injuries now. So for a year and change, I used to just train at the park in my free time. And then once I found that there were trampoline parks here, I was just like, I kind of put my hands together, just like, all right, now I can do all, now I can do all the big girl skills and not worry about blowing a knee or something. So then I went to the tramp, I, I would go to the trampoline park pretty frequently, especially because it's actually the one I go to is pretty close to where I work. So maybe every few weeks when I go to work, I would pack like some workout clothes. So then after work, I can just go there, change and practice. So I've been doing that for maybe almost a year. And I remember I saw a poster and it was from a trampoline competition from a previous year. And that poster has probably been up there the whole time I've been going there, but for whatever reason, I noticed it. So I was just looking at it and I was just thinking to myself like, hmm, that's interesting. And then I was looking at the picture and I noticed that it was all children in the picture. And 
Um, I took a picture of the poster because it had the name of the competition in Chinese. So I went, I took a picture of it. That way I could translate all the Chinese that was on the poster and then copy and paste that into YouTube to see if I can find any information, find any videos from that competition. So I looked at, I looked it up. I saw videos. I saw that it was mostly children doing these competitions, no one older than 18. But I did see a few videos of people who looked like they probably were older than 18, but not 100% sure because we always say black don't crack, but also Asian don't raisin. I don't know how old <laughs> these people are. So, so I decided to shoot my shot. And the next time I went back there, I asked the people at the front desk about the competition and yeah, he's, and he told me like, oh yeah, it's like an annual national competition they do every year. And I'm like, yeah, that seems really cool. And then I was like, is it just for children or can adults do it too? And he's like, yeah, there's an adult division. And I said, can foreigners also do it too? And he said, yeah. So I kind of low key got the answer that I wanted to get. Yeah. So... <laughs> So I feel like, you know what? I got the answer I wanted. I should just ask, can I do it? So I ended up asking him and he said, yeah. So I gave him all the information that I needed to give him. And they um, they very generously told me all the ins and outs of the competition and the routine I needed to put together and hit. So this was last... When was this? It was in November and it was in Sinju. So um, for a second, I almost thought I couldn't do it because during the whole registration process, there was like some minor issue. So I almost thought like, oh, maybe I won't be able to do it. But then they were able to fix it. They helped me and fix it. So I got in and I did the competition and I placed six. So I was I was very proud of myself. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was it was very cool because while I knew about trampolining as a competitive sport, mm-hmm. I never trained it. Like me training trampoline is like going to my friend's house and bouncing on the trampoline in her backyard. And then I think when I was older, trampoline parks, like the ones we have here, started to become popular and they started building them in, not in my city, but like cities nearby where I lived. So I never really knew about training trampoline I just knew about like artistic gymnastics which is the type of gymnastics people usually see on tv when they're watching the olympics and I knew about rhythmic gymnastics but I never knew about gyms that train just trampoline and tumbling so Wait, so like is, is trampoline is it like is it flips in the air is it do you have to like do dance like how would you describe it just like in a quick four to five sentences like what exactly it looks like when you're competing and trampolining Okay, so the rules of trampolining, you do 10 skills and you have to do it back to back. So you can't do like an extra bounce in between. So it's like you bounce up, you do a flipping skill or a jumping skill. And then once you hit the ground, once you hit, not the ground, once you hit the trampoline and bounce up again, you need to start your next skill. So it has to be continuous. And um, on a competitive trampoline, um, one will notice that there's like a box. There's like um, 
there's a long rectangle and then there's like a small box and then there's like an X or a T. So all of your movements need to stay within that small box or else you get deductions from your score. Because if you're able to maintain the same spot when you're doing all of your tricks, it shows that you have control of your body and, and you have and you're able to do this, do these things without falling out of balance. Oh, okay. I'm not gonna lie. I could not do any of that, but you know, Patrick, uh, you know, my best friend and business partner and all that, yes. but yeah, like he, he used to be a diver. Uh, well, he mm-hmm. is a diver, I guess you went to diver and always a diver, but we always go to the Ninja factory, which is a trampoline, indoor trampolining plates kind of mm-hmm. here in Taijong. And like, he's always doing all these crazy flips and stuff. I'm like, man, you should, I told him like, you should probably, you know, look into doing this because he's, he's good with flipping and stuff. I'm always afraid I'm going to land on my head. So I'll, I can go up and down real, real good, but it's the, it's the flipping part. My body just don't agree with that. Uh, I just stick to basketball, but yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> to be, with, to, huh? uh, I was going to say, to be honest, Patrick should do it because I've seen videos of him on like Instagram and I'm like, honestly, you can go ahead and might just win the competition. Right. I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually going to tell him that if they have another one before he leaves in May, then I'll definitely recommend him going ahead and doing that one time before he leaves. Mm-hmm. So I can, so I can, I can get the gold medal because I recommended it. But uh, like, so with everything, <laughs> so with everything you have going on with work and with trying to keep up with family and meeting mm-hmm. new friends, um, how do you, how do you, how are you able to maintain consistency with all the extracurricular things that you do just to maintain, maintain a normal life while living abroad? <laughs> that's that's something I'm actually still trying to figure out because with me, I have a problem that I call a good problem and a bad problem to have at the same time. I like a lot of things and I want to do it all at the same time. But honestly, unless the hours in a day miraculously become longer, that's not going to happen. So I find with all the activities I do, like capoeira, like tumbling, um, I also didn't mention I learned how to scuba dive two years ago. So also scuba diving too. I find that within a certain season, I pick what I want to focus on. I pick which activities I would like to focus more on. So when I was preparing for the competition, all of my priority was toward trampolining. Or if there's a capoeira event coming up, then all of my time is gonna go toward capoeira because it's like, oh, I wanna get this bill in the next promotion ceremony. So I'll spend more time with this. Or if I wanna take a course in diving, okay, I'm going to cut back on other activities because I want to save my money so I can take this diving course and go on this diving trip. So I find with the seasons, I kind of pick what I want to focus on. So like with with trying to to maintain everything that you're doing, the things that you do, uh, when do you prioritize? Is there like a certain part of time during the week or during the day or during the month or even the year where you prioritize family connections or friendship connections more than other times, right? Because I know just just as a normal adult, I always think about if I were to live back at home, how would I structure my time? And again, you have your nine to five, which is work Monday through Friday for most people, unless mm-hmm. you work nights, and that takes up your time. Then after that, it's, it's you time, you have to eat, maybe go to the gym, and then you have phone calls, social media relationships, things like that. But being out here, you know, it's, it's very easy to kind of get lumped into all about work right people don't like mm-hmm. that definitely happens or all about me because you're on vacation uh so like are there any do you section times off to make sure you have that amount of time dedicated to family to building relationships or to just extracurricular activities as well 
Um, yeah, so with my parents, um, I've actually started doing this within the last year. So since I live close to my work, I can actually walk there as long as I leave by a certain time. And usually as I'm getting ready to go to work and then I then walk to the school, I use that time to talk to my parents. Okay. So, and it's very convenient too because morning here is evening there. So they're not busy with work. So usually when I call them, they're either eating dinner or they're just finishing dinner. So they're already in like relaxed mode at that time. So I found that was I found that to be very perfect. So if I don't talk to them on the weekends, at least Monday through Friday, I've been very consistent with talking to to them at that time. Um, with friends, I would say I've been doing a really bad job at that of keeping up with friends. But I feel like this year, I guess since it's the pandemic year and all the stuff that's going on back home, I feel like I've made it more of a priority to try to to try to improve my relationships with family and friends back home. Yeah, because I know you, you went home uh, last year right before the pandemic started. So, like, were you yeah. coming back into the country right before, not necessarily the lockdown, but but before borders started to close? Or, like, or can you talk a little bit about that experience yeah. you had with leaving and then coming back right when COVID was kind of yeah. coming a thing? Yeah, so this time last year, I was in the U.S. So, at this time, COVID was really primarily an East Asia-only problem. I think there were, like, a few select places in other parts of the world where it was a problem, but it was primarily a problem in East Asia only, primarily China. So actually, the time around the time when I went back, people were actually really scared for me because we're in Taiwan and it's very close to China. And I guess at least with my parents, they know I I've tell them about like Chinese New Year and usually how around that time everybody is traveling between Taiwan and mainland China. So it's very easy for things to, to enter the country and slip in. So a lot of people were actually scared for me. And I remember when I came back, there were actually some people who were a little bit hesitant about seeing me because they thought I probably had some exposure to the coronavirus. Like I remember there were people who were like, oh, you're back in America. Oh, that's nice. I'll stop by in like a week or so to come see you. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait! I feel like we we saw you within that period of time as well. I think didn't you come to the bar? We can get to that later. Sorry. <laughs> I came. Oh, when I saw when I saw y'all, that was after I finished my quarantine. Quarantine, yeah. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So that's after I came back to Taiwan and did quarantine. So, so right before I would say when I left did, left the U.S., it was mid March. So that was around the time things started to shut down within the country. So it wasn't nationwide, but there were already cities that were going through their own lockdowns. I think it was primarily, I think all of the states that had like a very rapid uptick with the virus. So like West Coast states, New York City, the New York City area, I think those places were hit the hardest with COVID first before it started kind of just going across all 50 states. So in those places, there were people that were closing things or schools were getting shut down. But nationwide, not yet, but it was coming. 
everybody knew it was coming. So, so during my time, I really wasn't like, I wasn't really like cautious about not trying to get sick. Cause at that time it, it w- in the beginning of my time home, it wasn't a problem yet. And actually my, fr- um, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my first experience of reverse culture shock. So I imagine for many Americans who live in Taiwan, when they go back home for the first time, a lot of the culture shock is maybe like jet lag or certain um, differences between cultural cultural traits in Americans versus cultural traits in Taiwanese. So here's my first, here's when I first realized I was really back in America. So when I left Taiwan and I was at the airport, every single person at the airport had a mask on. I think the number of people I saw that didn't have a mask on, I could count on one hand. Mm. So my first flight was to San Francisco. So after I landed there and I went through uh, customs, I was speed walking to the domestic terminal because the lines were really long and I was worried about missing my flight. So once I got, once I cleared through all of that, I was basically walk jogging to the, to the domestic terminal. And I, I ended up making it to my gate in time and I had time to spare to like sit down and breathe for a second. So I sat down, found a place to charge my phone so I could text my parents that, hey, I'm in America, I'm leaving soon for my next flight. And at that time, I noticed a lot of people were staring at me or they were cutting their eyes at me. And I had no clue why. And I'm just sitting there like, what's the problem? What's your deal? Why is everyone looking at me like this? And it was at that moment I realized I still had my mask on. I never took it off after I landed. <laughs> and <laughs> and I think at that moment, that's when I realized like, oh yeah, I'm definitely not in Taiwan anymore. <laughs> and it's very funny now because now we know that there's a lot of debates back home about whether or not someone should wear a mask when they leave the house. So that was my first experience of reverse culture shock. People and looking you know, at me sideways. <laughs> you know, and when you said that, because I know for me when I go back, one of the things that is always an adjustment is real under, realizing that everyone where I am understands and speaks English fluently. So like, you know, in Taiwan, sometimes you'll say some things and like, oh, you maybe didn't understand, you didn't catch that. But no, back yeah. home, everyone understands the language. But yes, one time I was just out and it was cold outside it's because, it's, you know, Chicago and I hate going back home during the wintertime, but I was back mm-hmm. for Thanksgiving. I just put my mask on. I was just walking in the store and it was like, oh my God, are you sick? Do you need to go to the yeah. hospital? I'm like, no, nah, man, my face was cold and this is a mask. And I'm yeah. trying to, it actually is helping me breathe. And yeah, that's, that's, it's so interesting, especially <laughs> during that time. And to see the transition between, you know, March, April, May, June, when all these anti-maskers were out there to like mm. now it's kind of second nature. Everyone just wears a mask, even those who were so strongly against it because, you know, the world's been going crazy for about a year and some change. But that's that's a very interesting story, especially given the timeline when it happened, right? Yeah, it was very, it was very interesting. So like, um, man, that's just such a... So like, do you... I know you went back home to visit, but I know you've been here for almost four for four years now. Is there any mm-hmm. plan to eventually go back home or at any point in time or are you planning on being in Taiwan for even longer now? I think at this point, cause I've been here for 
for four, almost four years now. I feel like at this point, I would like to wait it out until I can um, be eligible to get the APRC and have permanent residency here. And then mm-hmm. after that, if I decide to leave or go somewhere else, if I were to do it, I would do it at that time. But right now, I don't really feel that I want to go back right now. I mean, especially not right now, now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but um, even prior to, prior to the pandemic, I think prior to going home, I think I still had my idea that I wanted to at least stay until I get an APRC. And I think going home made me realize I should visit home more, but I didn't quite feel ready to move back yet. I actually had a plan to go back in September of this year, because there was an event that I wanted to attend. But given the way things are looking right now, who knows if that's going to happen? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of people, just for the listeners, like an APRC is basically a permanent resident card. It's something that I have and I've had for almost six years now, but it just allows you to, if you did decide to leave Taiwan, uh, you could have it for, I think, up to five years without actually living here. Then you're still able to come back if you decide, you know what, I actually do want to permanently live here. And this gives you more flexibility. Like you can pretty much work anywhere once you have that card. But if you don't have that, then where you work, like your living here is tied, has to be tied to a job or a place of employment that basically sponsors your visa, which is a resident card to stay here. So yeah, there are a lot of foreign, I mean, once you get that, it does open up a lot of doors, especially if, you know, what I encourage people to do when they come is to use those five years to save as much as you can. And then once mm-hmm. you get that card, like find what you really want to do, right? Like discover different ways of working. If you don't want to teach, don't teach, uh, you know, do something for yourself or just travel around or whatever you want to do. But uh, there is mm-hmm. a lot of power in that APRC card. So outside of Taiwan, I know, cause again, you looked into a lot of different places when you're looking to move abroad, uh, you know, you got Korea and Japan and all these other places. Is there somewhere else that you would like to live um, and spend a little bit of time in uh, other than Taiwan in America? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, to be honest, whenever I see people talk about where they live, it always sounds amazing. But <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, anywhere can sound amazing if someone sells it enough. But if I were to base it on all of the places that I've actually visited, I would say a place I could see myself possibly living in would be Singapore. I love Singapore when I went there. Mm-hmm. And if not Singapore, Maybe Malaysia if I want to if I want to spend less money because uh, Singapore and Malaysia are very similar culturally and like style. But man, they are very different money wise because Singapore is super. Yeah, expensive. Singapore is expensive. Yeah, that's why I said if I want to spend less money, I'll go to Malaysia. Because I mean, you know me, I, I I like the occasional adult beverage, and when I saw a beer was fourteen U.S. dollars in Singapore, <laughs> man, that was a that was a short trip. I, well, it wasn't a short trip. We still was a five-day trip, but I, I definitely downsized yeah. my spending. But I spent my 25th birthday there, uh, and my friends oh, nice. paid, paid for a lot of it. So God bless them. They was balling back then. But, because um, ooh, <laughs> man. Good. But, you know, one of the countries that I wanted to stay in was uh, – through traveling. I think that's that's why I said after five years, like just take some time to see the world. Uh, because I, I now know I, I could see myself retiring in New Zealand. And when I say retiring, it's like eight months out of the year because I don't want to be anywhere during the wintertime. And the winters in New Zealand are the summers in Chicago, which is perfect. Uh, but yeah, ah, New Zealand. That's smart. 
it's just so laid back. It's so comfortable. I have friends there. My godson is there and he'll be there for a while, most likely. So uh, with his family. So, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, that's one of the places I think I've always wanted to kind of lay back and, and retire in. But like uh, my, my last question, I guess, would be uh, what is it like uh, just being your black self in Taiwan? Like, have you learned a little bit more about your black self? Have you been challenged in different ways? Um, yeah, just, just anything just about being a black woman and living and thriving uh, on the island so far. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I didn't realize this coming to Taiwan because it's not my first time in Asia. But I would say back in college when I first came to, when I first came to this part of the world, it made me realize that, it made me realize that how surprised or like shocked people are to see you. Like, I remember I was talking to someone about what it's like to be black in Taiwan. And I said, it's almost like being a unicorn here because people right. are very, people are very surprised to see you're here or they're surprised to see that someone that looks like you exists. And um, so quick story. So when I was in Hong Kong, this is when I noticed that like, people would walk up to me and say like, can I take a picture? And at first when I heard it, I was thinking like, they want me to take a picture of them. So like, you know, when you're traveling <laughs> solo and you want someone to take a picture of you. So that's what I was, so I put my hand out to take their phone so I can take a picture of them. And they were like, no, I want to take a picture with you. And I'm just like, why do you want to do that for? <laughs> <laughs> and and then I think, and then the next time it happened, so um, have you ever been to Hong Kong? Yeah, a few times. Yeah. So you know the really tall Buddha statue where you climb up all those steps? Oh, yeah. I didn't make it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh. So um, so we, I went there and, oh, I should also mention, so when I, did, when I, went, when I went on this trip with my classmates, um, I would say there were 12 of us. I think it was about 12 people. Half of them were black, half of them were athletes, half of them were athletes in sports where being a tall, where being tall is an asset. So whenever we were walking together, we kind of looked like a clan of NBA and WNBA players. <laughs> so, so when we went to see the Buddha statue, well, so we went up, we took a bunch of pictures, and then as we were walking down, it was a it was a weekend, so it was a lot of people there. So some people were kind of just standing around on the stairs and just like hanging out and whatever. And I remember when we got to the bottom, I knew that there were a group of people standing there, but of course I'm not thinking much of it. But once we actually got there to the bottom of the steps and passed them, this one lady walked up to us. She put her phone in her face. And then I realized she had like the language, the Google Translate already set in her phone and she just pressed play. And it said, can I take a picture of, can I take a picture with you, please? And I was just like, wow, like the determination to take a picture with us. I don't know why, but at least since you asked, at least since you actually asked and didn't do it like paparazzi style, okay, I'll take a picture with you. And then another, and then in the same day, uh, my friends and I were waiting in line, waiting in line, and I was talking to one person, and I had really long braids in my hair when I was on this trip. Mm -hmm. And the person, there was someone behind me who was playing with my hair, 
And at first, I thought it was this little boy who was also, who I knew was standing in line behind us. I'm just like, oh, this little kid's playing with my hair. If he knocks on it again, I kind of like turn around and be like, ah, 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 don't do that. (laughs) But as I'm talking to my friend, he can see behind me. And then he was like, Nicole, that guy's touching your hair. So then I turned around and the look on his face, it was almost like getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar before dinner. Like he looked so guilty and he was just like, oh, sorry, it's just your hair is so cool. <laughs> so, so it was all these very interesting situations. And I would say in Taiwan, I didn't get the same level of what I call paparazzi treatment, but it was like still a lot of people that are very like surprised about my presence. And, and being in the classroom and teaching children, and we all know children have zero filter when it comes to talking about people, especially talking about people's appearances. Mm-hmm. So, so in the classroom, there are many times where, where they would say like, teacher, why are you black? Teacher, why is your hair like that? One, one kid, I don't know if he was trying to be funny, but he said, teacher, are you coffee? And the way I responded to these questions I responded in a way that would make them think about what they just said. So, so take something like teacher, are you coffee? So the kid who asked me this question, he's very pale. So he looks like he's white. So I kind of reversed the question and was just like, okay, if I'm coffee, are you milk? And then, <laughs> and then he just looked at me like, why would you call me that? I'm not milk. And I'm just like, exactly. Or, or another question like teacher, why are you black? So, I flipped the question. I said, why are you yellow? And he was like, yellow? I'm not yellow. And I'm like, well, I'm not black either, if we're going to keep it honest. And he had this confused look on his face. And he didn't get the, he obviously didn't get the answer that he wanted to get. But he's like, OK, you're not black like the marker, but why do you look like that? And I flipped the question again. Why do you look like that? And he and he kept saying, but it's like here, Taiwan people don't look like you. And I was like, well, where I'm from, many people don't look like you. So why do you look like that? So I could tell he was thinking really hard, trying to figure out how to answer this question, how to answer these these questions. And he was just like, he took a second to think, and he was like, well, my mommy and daddy look like me. And I'm just like, yeah. And my mommy and daddy look like me. So whenever I get these kind of questions, I just always flip the question just so I can get them to think about like, what did they really ask? And make it think that most people, while everyone in the world doesn't look like me, everyone in the world doesn't look like you either. You know what? That's actually, and I've done that. I think a lot of black teachers have had experiences where they've, again, it's always how you react to it. And I think we have more of a tolerance with children when they do that, because like you yeah. said, kids are kids. Um, but, you know, when, when adults do it, it's like, come on, like you, you've seen, you either have a TV or you have a phone. If you've seen, you know that the world isn't just comprised of people that look exactly like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some point it's ignorance. I understand that from the older population who maybe didn't have TVs growing up in Taiwan or live in the mountains or whatever. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, for normal everyday people, you have access to this information and you know better. And I know I was talking to a Taiwanese friend the other day 
who said, uh, and it was funny, she just said this without even, you know, like thinking about it. Because I was like, oh, you know, I'm in 7-Eleven and you know how, you know how old people in Taiwan are, how they'll just cut the line and don't really like mm-hmm. care. They just, you know, that's just what they do. And it's cool, but not really. But, but and, and I was telling her this and she was like, oh, like they're not scared of black people here anymore. And I was like, you know, and I didn't really think much of oh. it. I was like, oh, you know, I'm like, oh. but then, you know, I, when I came here 11 years ago, like it was a thing. Like people were, when they would see me or, you know, I'll be in close contact, kids and adults would like jump like, oh my God, it's a black person. And it's mm-hmm. like, and, it, and, I, and I know, I know part of that is, you know, what are you doing here in Taiwan? There aren't that many of you, but part of it is like, maybe they are really scared, but progressively as more and more of us have actually made it to the island, have been in different, you know, different aspects of the island. Um, it has been a fact that like, they aren't necessarily intimidated or afraid as they used to be in their, with their reaction is what I'm speaking to directly. So it is interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I have seen that just from my own experience in being here. Like now they're like, oh, cool. It's not like, oh, a black person's like, hey, what's up, person? I wonder where you're from, but I don't care enough to ask. So I'm going to keep walking, you know, kind of like that. But in China, yeah. on the Great Wall, it was just, I understand why celebrities hate it because it was every three steps. Oh, can I take a picture? Photo, photo, photo. And I speak Chinese. So I just said it real loud. I was like, I'm done taking pictures for today. Get away from me. Thank you. Yeah. Take a picture yeah. of the wall. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a tourist attraction. The wall is. <laughs> right. And you will get pushed off it if you get too close. But yeah. um, <laughs> this is the part of the podcast where do you have uh, anything else you'd like to share or do you have any other questions for me? Oh, yeah. Um, so I know you also write on Medium. And I'm not exactly sure what your if you have any specific like end game with Medium or goal. But just like seeing what you've written so far, I was wondering, have you ever thought about writing for any of like the popular publications that are on Medium? Do you know about that? I uh, do not know how to go about doing that, to be honest. I mean, I used to, after I, before and after I wrote my first book, I did think of myself as more of a writer. And I kind of transitioned out of that uh, because just with being over here and the things that I was more interested in. Uh, but I just don't know. Honestly, I honestly just haven't looked into it. And I don't know how to get started with that. Um, Patrick does help me with a lot of my editing, too. Like He's a fantastic editor. Um, mm-hmm. But I've always wanted to get in more into writing. Uh, but I've kind of shifted now into using my lack of time to put into the writing process to use it with speaking, right? Because I do mm-hmm. talk how I write. Uh, and I noticed that I speak how I write. I'm sorry. And I noticed mm-hmm. that a lot about myself. So I kind of take the writing aspect of my art and I use it in my speaking via, via podcast and interviews and things like that. But I do want to get more into writing because people still read articles and stuff like that. Right. Even sometimes yeah. when they listen to things and there's power in the pen. And I've always believed in that. And I've always tried to reach people through writing as well. So if I know how, I definitely will look into it. Yeah. Because the reason I ask because like some of the things that I've read, I was just like, oh, I feel like this would have been a good fit in one of the publications. And and I think like the good thing about the publications, there are good things and bad things about it. I have a lot of opinions about Medium because I've been on it. <laughs> I've been on it for five years. So I've I've seen a lot of trans I've seen a few transformations on it. And I noticed with the publications, it helps you expand your audience to people who may be seeking out the type of things that you write about. However, at the same time, getting into a publication now is actually a lot harder than when 
I was on Medium and publications was still like a relatively new thing. Um, it's more true about the really popular ones, but I find that in like the medium sized publications where there's still a fairly large audience, I find it's easier to get into it. And I mean, I could tell you more about how to get into it after this conversation. But yeah, I was thinking like, oh, that would be a great way to, to get what you have to say to a much wider audience. Cause, cause the way with medium, I think medium be, got bigger than what it ever expected to be. Cause it seems like they always tweak the algorithms to be less and less in your favor unless you're of that top tier that's already ha- that already has thousands of followers. But I think if you can still get into those publications, you're able to get your you're able to get your article seen by a much larger audience. Yeah, and I think I will, I'm definitely oh, I definitely would appreciate more information after this. But yeah, that's definitely something I've been, I will look in, I definitely want to learn more about and do, because again, you know me, I'm all about outreach. But mm-hmm. well, I mean, with stuff that I've put out, even with the writing and with the podcast, it's always about, you know, getting the word out and helping people and spreading information. So if that's a way, definitely looking forward to that. So thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, you're welcome. And are there any other, anything else you would like to add about your experience or any other questions that you have? Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, so, so with your, with the, with the bar, with arts and crafts, I want to ask, what would you say was your biggest challenge about starting a big business in Taiwan and slash, or what is the biggest lesson you've learned throughout the process of starting a business here? Um, the biggest outside of finances because that's always a challenge I feel like you can kind of allude to especially with COVID but I mean the the biggest challenge was uh, consistency not necessarily I think as a a whole because it's not just me right it's myself and Patrick but consistency Mm -hmm. in the sense that you know when you're back home and not to say that we don't have family and friends well we don't have Patrick has a cousin I don't have like actual family but we don't have like close friends and things here Uh, but you know when when you're back home if you open a business you just have that 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 cloud cover of support, like from your family mm-hmm. and your your friend, and you and you feel that, right? Even if they don't come all the time, it's just you have that support that you know is always going to be there, even if the business isn't successful. Like people will put friends on, and like while we had that, it's just very different out here because of how foreigners are, how they travel, uh, especially with COVID, how people kind of came and went. So I guess mm-hmm. the biggest challenge was just consistency and maintaining the motivation to continue to put out events even if the bar was full or not full and that's an important part of business but an aspect that i think because of the way that we designed it as an art and open space people to come in and enjoy different things uh it was difficult to do that at times because like that that feeling just wasn't there and if i and another challenge was not working in the bar all the time right Mm should have hired employees like if i ever open another business again like I want to put in position where I am the boss and I am not 100% dedicated to being there. I have to be there every day. Like you need time away from anything, especially a business that you run and you pour so much of your money into, but also your time into like sometimes that's too much that's overwhelming. So you need time to be able to step back and not be 100% hands on all the time. I think those are the two challenges, but also some things that I would change just and learned about having a business, specifically a business abroad. It's like, man, you need to be 
a full on owner because the fact of it is when times got hard, like we were still having to be in there and we weren't able mm-hmm. to kind of take a step back and go out and meet other people to get people to come to the bar and things like that. So it's just uh, managing how we managed it better um, and also just learned about uh, the the power and consistency and the power and having that supportive umbrella out here. And if you understand that going in, then you can kind of be prepared for it. But we, you know, kind of didn't like you take for granted what real and true friendships are sometimes being abroad. And you also grow to learn what those actually are, the more mm-hmm. you interact with people and the more experiences you have. So um, those are just two things that I've thought about that are definitely, you know, to answer the question about challenges and things I've learned about it. But I, I, I definitely also just a positive, more positive note. Uh, we need more spaces like this. Uh, I'm just so, I, I think agree. like me and Patrick are just so thankful. Even people don't come all the time. Like it is still a place like just this past weekend, black people came in new black people that we've never met, but they know it's a place you can come and hear your music, uh, talk to people who talk like you. Right. So there was someone sitting at the bar and it was weird. Cause he, you no, know, he was a white guy, a very cool down earth. Love this part. Like he's a great person. But then, you know, uh, what was his name? Walter. Uh, Walter also interviewed for the podcast. You can check out. It's called Walter the Wise. Check out his episode. Mm-hmm. But he came in with another uh, older black gentleman, too. And uh, we were talking to the white guy. But then as soon as they walked in, like, conversation changed. Like, we started speaking like we would speak as if we were back home. And they mm-hmm. were able to speak to us the same way, right? And they access, you know, tips and stuff like that. We could share stories. And we were talking about uh, black uh we were actually talking about black actresses who could play Corella DeVille. And we were just like uh-huh. listing black. And, but it was just like the conversation, the energy, the way it felt was just something that, you know, you can't walk into every space and get or every place and get and be able to go out and enjoy beverages. And just to have something like that is really like you can't speak enough about it. So I guess I realized that there are more spaces like this needed abroad. And I hope that in some way I can inspire people who have the means or just want to do it to open more spaces like this and places where we are uh, just so we can have more of this, because I think it is an important part for our community building as black expats abroad. Yeah, I 100% agree, because it's nice going to a place where you can speak your slang and no one's looking at you like what? Or like certain references that only people who are part of that culture would understand. So yeah, I I always appreciate about that whenever I visit you guys at the bar. Yeah, you know, it keeps it mad real. But yeah, thank you. That was a good question. Thank you. Nobody's ever asked me that. Yeah, I might have to cut that out and put that in another episode. But yeah, are there any <laughs> other questions? <laughs> any other questions or comments or anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, no, I can't think of anything. Thank you for having me on here. Well, thank I've, nev- you. <laughs> I've never been on a podcast before. Really? Well, I hope to have you back. Uh, if you, you know, if you're open to it in April, I'm doing another series. I, I can't announce it now, but I'll announce it later. But I think uh, you have a lot to contribute to that conversation as well. But thank you so much for joining. Um, it was a pleasure having you on. Learned so much. Uh, and I'm sure the audience did as well. So thank you so much, Nicole Cooper, for joining us. You're welcome. Have a great remainder of your day. And thank you, everyone, who tuned in for this episode of the Black Expat Podcast. Once again, thank you so much for Nicole Cooper, a.k.a. Coop, for joining me on the show today. Um, you guys, check her out on Medium. I will leave her Medium links in the in the description of this podcast and on my upcoming YouTube uh, video. So make sure to check it out here on the podcast if you're listening afterward or later on my YouTube channel as I upload it. Um, As always, I'm looking for patrons. So if you want to support the Black Expat Podcast moving forward, please click on the link in the Podbean app called 
become a patron become a patron there or the, it's also linked in this episode description as well thank you guys once again for tuning in it was a pleasure to have an amazing interview of her story part two her story part three be coming up next week with another interview guest again my name is carl the black expat thank you to nicole thank you thank, all. You. thank you to all the listeners and we are out of here peace